Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 159, A Plan and a Party. I can't believe that it's been over a year since my last episode focusing on the Soviet Union. Longer still since I sat down and actually wrote one. I can still feel the vague feeling of disorientation after having spent so much of my time reading and writing about the formation about the early days of the USSR, and if you detected a certain rush to wrap up the narrative back in episode 1010, the end of that last miniseries, it's because I was thoroughly burned out on Soviet history. Sorry for that, and rest assured that this miniseries will not be trying to cover the whole expanse of that history for the 1930s, and instead will be returning to it over the course of this season. This time around, I'm going to be focusing on the first five-year plan, the all-encompassing, all-or-nothing effort to transform the Soviet Union into a top-rank industrialized nation. On paper, it ran from 1928 to 1932, although since the plan's effects were monumental, I'll be covering many major events into 1934. And today, I'm specifically going to be doing a little uh, reintroduction of sorts. I'll be laying out the historical context that predominated the outset of the, of the reforms, as well as covering the key players on Stalin's team that would actually implement them. And if you're apprehensive about this series being focused too much on just a single topic, take heart. The first five-year plan was so expansive and dominating to the Union's activity during this period that covering the progress of the plan means you're pretty much covering domestic Soviet history as a whole. The plan was so central to Stalin's vision of what the Soviet Union was to be, and indeed so integral to its future survival, that executing it was at the forefront of everyone's minds. Rarely does a piece of government policy become so central to the nation's very existence. But here it is, a prime example. And the interesting thing was that despite all the odds against it, the five-year plan actually worked. Or at least it worked in the sense that it accomplished its stated objective of industrializing the USSR. It also did a whole lot of other things, as industrializing elsewhere in the world was always a multi-generational process. Nobody had actually tried doing it within five years, and nobody had tried to do it according to a set plan either. Okay, uh, set plan is stretching things. Maybe all in one go might be a better way to describe it. Just to provide some context about why the execution of the plan stands out in history, you have to keep in mind that in the West, industrialization was a process that was dragged out all across the 1800s. Uh, there were no government edicts in any country saying that creating an economy based on mass production was a desired end goal, and instead it came about as a result of technological advancements allowing for machines to produce goods more efficiently and cheaply, while at the same time advances in agriculture reduced the need for labor on farms and therefore created a new labor pool ready to move into cities and work in the factories, all of which happened fitfully over decades of time. On top of that, there emerged a capitalist class of businessmen who prospered from existing trade and therefore could take their profits and reinvest them in the newfangled factories. These enterprises would churn out goods at relatively low costs, stimulating demand among a consumer base that was increasingly urban, as well as creating new input resource demands that stimulated increased activity in those sectors. This meant more money sloshed around the system, which meant more and more could be invested into new enterprises. It was an aggressive cycle of growth punctuated by cyclical downturns when markets overextended themselves. 
But even as Karl Marx readily admitted, this capitalist system was wonderful for growth, although its inherently exploitive nature created conflicts and inequalities that would have to be hashed out someday. But again, it was wonderful for growing an economy, assuming that sufficient resources were available to feed the machine. Russia, meanwhile, was late to the industrialization game. An indifferent imperial system of rule didn't care to encourage enterprises too much, up until later, that is. Its agricultural sector was undeveloped and inefficient, resulting in less excess labor gravitating towards the cities than otherwise might have happened. And the unique size of the empire meant that moving people and resources to operate a modern economy was far more of a challenge than elsewhere on account of the nation's primitive infrastructure network. The main thing going for Russia was that its population base was so large that even a small excess slice of the rural population constituted a big labor market. And if infrastructure difficulties could be overcome, the empire was rich in resources to fuel the factories. This meant that by the time World War I started, Russia had managed to partially industrialize itself, and the urban proletariat that staffed the factories became the early heart of the Russian revolutions, culminating in the Great October 1917 Revolution. A little problem, though. The double whammy of World War I and the Civil War that followed October 1917 ruined Russia's industrial capacity. The railway lines broke down or were occupied for various war efforts, starving the factories and resulting in mass shutdowns. By the time the dust settled in 1921, the industrial sector was a shell of its former self. This created a conundrum for the Soviet leadership. The system of government that they aspired to achieve, communism, relied on a modern industrial economy. They found themselves trapped in a vast territorial base without the means to actually achieve socialism, much less communism. Plus, the rest of the world was almost uniformly hostile, so it wasn't like they could expect a helping hand from elsewhere. Under Lenin's guidance, they hit upon what seemed like the solution, the new economic policy, the NEP. This was a bundle of laws that liberalized the economy, allowing for private enterprises to spring up. As Marx understood, capitalism was marvelous for creating growth, so Lenin and the others wanted to use a controlled version of it to jumpstart the economy. Supervised private enterprise would create growth, and the resulting capitalists, or the NEPmen as they were derisively called, would accumulate capital. And when conditions were right, the Soviet state would swoop in and take over all that and use the wealth to transition to true socialism. China borrowed quite a bit from this playbook in the 1980s and have been running with it to this very day. This policy, whose heyday ran through the mid-20s, created no small controversy. The most obvious to both the communists and everyday people in the streets was that even a supervised market economy created the inequality inherent to capitalism. Average people resented the flaunting of wealth from the Nepmen, while many in the party openly questioned why they had gone through the trouble of a revolution and a civil war if they were just going to let the capitalists back in. An adjacent controversy was that nobody, not even Lenin, could say when exactly the NEP would actually end and proper, you know, communist policies be implemented. This ties back into the last thread of my previous Soviet miniseries, how the debates over the NEP played into Stalin's hands in his ascent to power. He first supported it in order to position himself as Lenin's loyal acolyte in his battles against the left opposition, then switched gears towards the end of the decade by saying that the NEP had had its day and was fit for replacing, 
which in turn allowed him to cudgel the right opposition that supported a continuation of the policy. Stalin's turn against the NEP came at both an opportune and critical time. Opportune because the excesses created by the NEP had worn down the patience of many, leading to more support to abandon the idea than had existed even a few years prior. And it came at a critical time because Stalin correctly assumed that the Versailles system of peace was doomed and a big war was coming. In, say, 1928, there wasn't all that much to support such a theory, but by the time the first five-year plan ended, his paranoia was proven to be justified. The Depression had made international politics increasingly a free-for-all, and the internationalist system of the 20s had broken apart rapidly. Aggressively anti-communist factions had either risen to power in places like Japan and Italy already, or were rapidly moving in that direction like in Germany. The vision of Stalin and the other proponents of the five-year plan was simple on paper, but startling in its implications. A largely non-industrialized Soviet Union would devote every ounce of purchasing power it could to acquiring industrial equipment to create a modernized economy. This meant going abroad and getting the tools needed to become self-sufficient in producing the equipment needed for mechanized agriculture, transportation, domestically built industrialized industrial equipment, and especially weapons. Uh, that last bit was a fixation because Stalin really, really was fearful of a general war on the horizon, and he knew the USSR would be on its own. The breathtaking timetable of development was not on account of aggrandizement or being able to boast about what the USSR was capable of, although that all was a plus. It was looked at as a life-or-death struggle. Now, the prospects for the planned success were not that great for a whole number of reasons. The immediate problem was actually getting the industrial equipment. The West held the keys to this, as they possessed factories which in turn made the equipment actually be used in industry. The Soviet Union lacked this almost completely. Their industrial sector relied on imports to expand or even replace old equipment. And the West were aware about what the Soviets wanted and were not inclined to provide it. They didn't want the communists to suddenly have a modern economy that could sustain itself and offer an alternative to theirs. But since so many countries were desperate to export goods even during the happier days of the 20s, the USSR could at least buy some of those industrial goods, just that they commanded top dollar and were paid for dearly. This was alleviated somewhat by the depression and the resultant desperation in the West for really any source of profit. I mentioned in my Fall of Weimar miniseries that a big winner of Germany's Depression-era collapse was the Soviet Union, which swooped in and bought up entire factories worth of equipment. The money to pay for these purchases had to come from abroad as well. Uh, the ruble was deemed internationally worthless since the revolution, and the USSR naturally had no access to international credit markets. Industrial purchases would have to be made with cold, hard foreign currency, and the way to get that was to sell other countries' goods, of which the only things the USSR really had to offer were raw materials. Coal, iron, timber, and oil were big items, but importantly for the fate of the Soviet people, there was grain. Grain was the traditional export heavyweight of Russia, and that continued with the Soviet Union. A point I've been hammering home all through this podcast, though, was that food prices in the world were historically low in the 20s, first because of overproduction, and then because of both that and nobody having money to actually buy once the Depression started. Grain had to be sold for cheap on the world market, and that meant a whole heck of a lot of it was needed in order to actually make any amount of money. 
which meant that the agricultural sector had to offer up a huge proportion of its production in order to be sold abroad. Now, this is just the easy breezy intro episode to get you acclimated, or in the case of veteran listeners, reacclimated to the situation in the Soviet Union, but you probably get where I'm going with this. The plan didn't call for excessive food quotas that would result in massive famines, but it didn't disallow it either, which we'll be covering for multiple episodes this series. And that leads me to circle back to why the plan was extraordinary. The objective was to create a modern economy not just in a portion of the country like happened under the Tsar, but to fully mobilize the potential of the nation. Farms would be reorganized to require as little labor as possible, and the cities would be packed full of new workers from the countryside to staff the new factories. All in five years. Okay, okay, the Soviets knew full well that it would take longer than that, but the first five-year plan was always intended to create a larger revolution in the USSR's economy than the following five-year plans. The reason why these years were so brutal, in both the countryside and the cities, was because of this insanely compressed time frame, which, again, was there because national survival depended on it which sounds like the Soviet leadership, including Stalin, had some crazy foresight ability, which they didn't. It's just that they looked at the instability of the world, the hostility of the capitalist great powers, the rise of even more hostile capitalist regimes around the world, and correctly concluded that there was a fight coming. Now, the reason I agonized a minute ago over the summary of industrialization in the West was to emphasize that it was a process, a process that took generations, and even stretched over time created pressures and conflicts that resulted in widespread human misery. Modern cities in the West during the 1800s and early 1900s were cramped, dirty, dangerous, full of disease, and industrial wages kept families living at starvation levels or close to it. The five-year plan called for this drawn-out human experience to be started and mostly completed within those five years. And this would all play out in a nation that didn't have a whole heck of a lot of expertise in the type of economy they were building towards. The USSR had precious few technical specialists, mostly as a consequence of Russia's existing backwardness, and the workers, who actually had to carry out the plan, plus the officials who managed them, would have to learn as they went. On top of all that, they were by necessity having to operate at the utmost of speeds. That meant when new factories were set up, not only were the facilities that people worked in brand new, but housing had to be set up to accommodate the incoming workers. And since everything was being committed to getting those new factories going, there wasn't a lot available for housing, leading to ramshackle workers' barracks, which would be a hallmark of cities all across the USSR during the 30s and 40s. Then, of course, there was the collectivization drive out in the rural areas. The purpose behind collectivization was to open up excess labor and bring the food supply under government management. Veteran listeners will remember that the government actually didn't have that much influence in the countryside through the 20s, and peasants managed their own affairs by and large on their communes. This was not uh, conducive to the maximum effort drive of the plan, and the government would need to be able to collect grain at will if they were to bring in sufficient cash in which to secure needed imports. Or at least, it looked that way. It didn't actually play out that way in practice, but we'll get to that. The difference here, as opposed to, say, in 1921, was that the USSR security apparatus was such that the government now had the capability to break apart those communes. 
Trouble was, there was still resistance which disrupted output, and the fact that there was no prior experience for mass collectivization meant that a historically great famine resulted, which, again, I will certainly be delving deeply into, but again, I'm kind of just trying to describe how far-reaching the effects of the plan were to give you some preparation for the episodes to come. And for the second part of this introductory episode, I'd like to cover the big names who were set to oversee this colossal transformation. The mid to late 20s had seen a startling turnover in the leadership of the USSR. The men at the top were certainly still considered old Bolsheviks, meaning they were those who had joined the party before the revolution, but they were the young old Bolsheviks. The OG generation that had surrounded Lenin had largely fallen out of power during the turnovers of the 20s. The reason for this was, of course, the machinations of Joseph Stalin. Stalin was given a hearty introduction last season, so I'm not going to linger over him here. Just listen to episodes 105 to 110 if you want to know his whole deal before 1928. Long story short, Stalin successfully played the various personalities that could challenge him against each other. He made alliances with one group to attack another, then turned on his allies when he shifted his friendship to yet another group. He got away with this because he never really committed to the infighting. Personally, that is. I mean, the infighting itself was kept out of the public view, but Stalin went a step further and hid his role in all of it from the Communist Party staff itself. Both his enemies and disposable friends took all the heat from creating rifts in the party, while he came out looking even-handed and above the petty squabbles to the rank and file. The other reason he got away with it was because he disassembled his enemies over time in those early days. He didn't drop the hammer all at once. He used pretexts as they arose over the course of years to steadily strip away positions from his opponents one by one until they had lost all their influence. If you were maddened last season by the constant cycle of party congresses and conferences that turned into opportunities for Stalin's enemies to be dragged through the mud, but not fully destroyed, year in, year out, that was because Stalin was keeping an eye out for his reputation in the party. It's important to note that even after he had clearly achieved dominance over the Soviet Union, that for a long time he governed with a cautious hand, sensitive to provoking opposition, even when leadership had devolved to his own hand-picked men. Because even though his team were thrust into prominence on account of his position as the party's general secretary, they had all been revolutionaries before meeting Stalin. They had had independent careers and achievements away from him and weren't just his slaves, at least at first. By the latter 30s, that would change, but the really dark days will be for a future miniseries. Here, the personalities involved are a little more important. The last reason Stalin got away with everything in his rise to power was the simple fact that he was personally charming. He wasn't much of a public speaker, but he didn't even address the nation until practically forced to during World War II. But in party get-togethers, he was in his element. He was outgoing, had a good sense of humor, could drink with the best of them, and was a workaholic. All those traits and more went a long way to hiding what was going on underneath the surface. But, like I mentioned a moment ago, there wouldn't be some old faces hanging around to enjoy those charms or be part of what Stalin was planning. Just to sound off where the losers had wound up, Leon Trotsky had got himself internally exiled in Kazakhstan in 1928. Uh, then, when he still maintained contacts with his network of supporters within the Union, even when he had been told to stop, he was exiled abroad at the start of 1929. First to Turkey, then across Europe, and eventually to Mexico. If you're wondering why Stalin didn't just have him killed then, it was a matter of PR. 
Trotsky was still the biggest name in the Union as far as the rest of the world went, and despite his political destruction within the party, was still regarded as a hero of the Civil War. Killing him would undermine the regime's legitimacy both at home and among the communist parties abroad. Grigory Zinoviev had been Lenin's major domo and number two while in their exile days, and had risen to manage the Leningrad branch of the party and the Comintern organization during the height of his influence. He had been an early ally of Stalin's in destroying Trotsky, but his erstwhile partner broke with them after that task was largely completed. Zinoviev was a cowardly and unlikable fellow and proved no match for the relentless Stalin. An effort to ally with Trotsky went nowhere on account of their past conflicts and deep mutual hatred. Over 1926 and 27, he was stripped of his positions and even expelled from the party. Admitting defeat, he was allowed back in after a suitable display of supplication, but only held minor postings from then on out. Lev Kamenev followed a similar trajectory after working with Zinoviev and Stalin against Trotsky. He too was cast aside, his positions were stripped, and he was forced to grovel his way back into the party alongside Zinoviev. In destroying those latter two guys, Stalin had turned to the right wing of the party, which was led by Nikolai Bukharin, who was regarded as Lenin's intellectual heir. Then there was Alexei Rykov, who was the chairman of the Sovnarkom and effectively the prime minister of the Soviet Union's bureaucratic government. The last big one was Mikhail Tomsky, who was the chairman of the Council of Trade Unions. They had all felt triumphant once they had secured Stalin's friendship and seemingly cowed the left wing of the party, as they supported the NEP and using liberal enterprise to build up wealth that could be used to build socialism later. These three will actually be important next week once I really get going into covering the five-year plan and its origins, as their opposition is what exposed them to political and eventually literal destruction and their assistance in clearing out Stalin's rivals helped open the way for the general secretary to use his position's power to elevate new men into high office. And these new men would form the core of what became Stalin's leadership team. And it's an interesting group, which is the main reason why I'm giving them such a large chunk of this episode. They weren't mindless drones, they were men with ideas and personalities all their own which will be good to keep in mind when the next time I drop in the Soviet Union during the era of the purges, because they felt very real human terror at what was happening around them. But by the time the first five-year plan got going in late 1928, they had formed a kind of a miniature community amongst each other. A fun fact people don't appreciate is that most of the highest government officials lived in the Kremlin apartments with their families during the late 20s and early 30s, at least when their duties didn't take them away from Moscow. That meant the highest echelons of the Soviet government operated in a format akin to a TV sitcom. They were neighbors. They were constantly bumping into each other and barging into each other's apartments to say hi and see what everybody was up to. If you wanted to get some face time with Stalin, you just had to stake out the hallways and eventually he'd be passing through. Uh, that was especially true for the corridor leading to the Kremlin cinema. That dude loved watching movies. They were a social community in addition to a professional one. They hung out. They even coordinated taking vacations together. Uh, the gossip and anecdotes we have on this clique comes primarily from their accounts of each other. It's endearing up to a certain point. Closest to Stalin was his effective secretary, Alexander Poskrebyshev. He acted as a coordinator between the various party and government groups, being the guy who actually alerted people to the appointments and favors that Stalin doled out. He was rewarded with ever higher positions, even joining the party's central committee down the road, but was always Stalin's shadow. 
It was his desk people would have to pass before entering Stalin's office in the Kremlin, and he was the alarm for those guests as to whether they would be getting a good or bad reception. He was a physically small man, but like so many serving Stalin possessed nearly unlimited energy and work capacity. He was sneered at as a dwarf, even a monkey by some, and his closeness to Stalin made others regard him as a pet. But if people wanted an appointment, they'd have to go through him. Now, the first real big guy on deck is one that you're probably already familiar with, either from his brief mentions last season or because his name was attached to a rather important treaty just before World War II, Vyacheslav Molotov. Outwardly mild-mannered with a neatly trimmed mustache and pince-nez glasses, he had an appearance closer to a banker than a communist. And despite being an early ally of Stalin's, the two had kind of a rocky start to their relationship. Twice, in 1912 and 1917, Molotov had to subordinate himself to a return from exile Stalin, being passed over in favor of the banded Georgian. Lenin himself considered him an able administrator, but a poor politician. His work ethic, though, gave rise to the nickname Stoneass, which derived from his constantly being at his desk. Trotsky bestowed the name on him as an insult during a Politburo meeting, holding him up as a poster child of the relentless bureaucracy smothering the more creative, revolutionary impulses of the Union. An embarrassed Molotov could only sputter that they couldn't all possess Trotsky's genius. He would later try and say that Lenin had earlier made up the nickname Iron Ass as a joking commendation, but uh, that never caught on among his comrades. Trotsky's dismissal of him might be an indicator why he wound up close to Stalin. Thinkers like Bukharin and Trotsky didn't think much of a plodding desk jockey, while his capacity for work was coveted by fellow workaholic Stalin. Also, fellow alcoholic Molotov was noted as being second only to his boss and how much booze he could put away. Among his comrades in the Kremlin apartments, he was the antisocial outlier, preferring to keep his privacy amidst the bustle of the inner circle. But he wasn't entirely a cold fish, as he was devoted to his wife, Polina Korpuskaya, who worked in the food and fishing ministries. She was a strong-willed and outspoken woman, which meant that she got on Stalin's nerves and made her a fast friend for Nadia, Stalin's also strong-willed and opinionated wife, which only annoyed Stalin still more. Molotov had met her at a women's conference in 1920 and were married soon after. He told her that he was tied to her body and soul and described her as his pleasure, honey. <laughs> Go get it, you soulless bureaucrat. Uh, since it's outside the scope of this podcast, I'll talk about it here. Despite the general secretary's dislike of her, Polina herself was devoted to Stalin. Her loyalty was not well rewarded, though, and she was eventually arrested in 1948. Molotov, while keeping quiet, would have his dinner table prepared for two, a sign of his genuine love for her, even in her absence. When she was released after Stalin's death, the couple would be reunited and fought against Khrushchev's de-Stalinization policies. During the 30s, Molotov would serve on the Politburo, and after Rykov's removal from the premiership of the Somnarkum in December 1930, he would hold that position until just a month before the German invasion in 1941. Oh, and just a refresh on terminology, Politburo was the small committee within the Communist Party that ostensibly existed to set the party's agenda. But since the party was central to all aspects of life in the USSR, it was where the big decisions of the nation were made. There were both voting members and non-voting members who still had the ability to weigh an opinion. Although, by the time we pick up the narrative, Stalin's supporters already dominated the group, and it would only get worse as time went on. The next closest ally to Stalin was his man in the Red Army, Clement Voroshilov. 
He is one that popped up quite a bit during the Civil War episodes, but his use to Stalin extended beyond the military. It kind of had to be because, holy hell, he was a bad general. He had risen to some prominence in the early part of the Civil War by leading partisans in eastern Ukraine around his hometown of Lugansk, a city later rebranded as Voroshilovgrad for a time in his honor, before being sent further east to command troops around Tsaritsyn, which itself would later be renamed Stalingrad. There he became friends with Stalin, who was the political leader of the area. I've covered it already, so long story short, he bungled the defense of the city, nearly leading to military catastrophe, and was only saved by Stalin's protection. He would eventually be placed in charge of the Defense Commissariat in late 1925, and became a full member of the Politburo in 1926. He was definitely a case where he was loyal to Stalin both out of a belief in his boss, but also because he really didn't have anywhere else to go. He was regarded as stupid and vain by everyone, including Stalin. He loved getting specially tailored uniforms and was always immaculately put together. He spent more of his time attending salon readings, orchestras, and theater performances than handling military matters. He surrounded himself with intellectuals and actors in an attempt to present himself as a sophisticate. It didn't work too well, and he was roundly despised by the Red Army's officer corps. Which leads me to bring up the Red Army really quick. Many of its officers were still Trotsky's men who had won the Civil War and were not really beholden to the emerging regime. Not that they were plotting against it, just that these were veterans who had earned their stripes in hard fighting and were not automatically deferential to Stalin or his cronies when it came to military affairs. This kind of perturbed Stalin, a feeling that Voroshilov encouraged. He hated many of the officers under him right back, being chagrined at their dismissal of him, and would be all for the future purges. For the moment, though, Stalin left them be. With the USSR still unindustrialized, the army badly lacked for equipment, and executing an experienced officer corps was ill-advised when it looked at various times that war with the UK, Japan, or the Central European states was possible. Next up is Lazar Kaganovich. He was a Jewish fellow who had been born and raised in the Pale, an area in the western reaches of the old empire that had been set up as a territory where Jews were restricted to. He came from a working-class background and shared a room growing up with his five siblings, of which he was the youngest. He was trained as a cobbler and even after joining the highest echelons of the state would inspect visitors' shoes and boots. If he liked the craftsmanship, he'd force them to take the footwear off so he could inspect them with the high-end tool set he had been gifted by some of the union's workers. Revolution was in the blood of his family, apparently, as three of his four brothers all joined with the Bolsheviks as well, and each rose to leadership positions in the USSR. He had met his wife while they were both working undercover on party business. They posed as husband and wife, which led them to fall in love for real and get married. He was not the intellectual type. Uh, <laughs> heck, his early codename that he adopted was Kosherevich, a joking play on his Jewish heritage but he was a forceful and hard-working personality that had been elevated by Lenin as a guy who can get things done. You might be noticing some patterns with the guys Stalin surrounded himself with. They weren't necessarily thinkers, they were doers. Kaganovich was single-minded and didn't stand on ceremony, leading him to be nicknamed by some as the Locomotive, while Stalin himself called him Iron Lazar. Despite his rough-and-tumble background and a stereotypically Jewish accent which set him apart, he was personally popular wherever he was known in the USSR. Even Molotov, who was unlike him personality-wise in almost every way, got on well enough with him, the pair respecting each other's drive and executing Stalin's vision. 
and Kaganovich was regarded as Stalin's foremost zealot, maybe the first to be called a Stalinist. His loyalty might have also come from his Jewish background, which he was always aware of and made him sensitive to being isolated and without political protection. And when following orders, he oftentimes went above and beyond, leading him to deal harshly with entire groups of people that Stalin had indicated were his enemies. His official positions were membership of the Politburo and in the party secretariat, just below Stalin himself, which concerned making appointments to open positions in both the government and the party. The next trio of characters are fun because they represent kind of a clique within a clique, as they all hail from the Caucasus region, the same as Stalin. Most prominent was Sergo Orjanakidze, the lively party boss of Stalin's homeland of Georgia. Orjanakidze actually had a longer history with Lenin and the Bolsheviks than did Stalin, which was uncommon since Stalin usually bound his team closer to him through their elevations in the ranks of the party that he had made on their behalf. But Orjanakidze had been waylaid back in 1922 when he had physically attacked a party comrade over a debate concerning the status of nationalities and how autonomous they would be in the USSR. Orjanakidze, like Stalin, was leery of allowing too much decentralization and felt that, especially in the case of his fellow Georgians, such freedoms would be used to break away or otherwise disrupt the new state. Unfortunately, physical violence within the party was a no-no and he got on Lenin's bad side. It was only after Lenin had died that his rise to the higher echelons resumed, and by that time, Stalin had obviously become his senior. He was eventually brought to Moscow in 1926 and placed in charge of the party's control commission, which adjudicated disputes and, if need be, handed out punishments within the party. It wasn't really a job he was well-suited for, despite, you know, having gotten into, tr into so much trouble over slapping a guy, but Orjanakidze absolutely despised inter-party fights. In Moscow, he grew depressed at all the infighting, and especially during episodes involving old party comrades and men that he had known for decades, yeah, it just it left him with a bad taste in his mouth. He actually broke down into tears sometimes over the sight of watching all these guys that he had known for so long being torn down. He would try to get transferred back to Georgia, but was denied at every turn. Uh, his own abilities were considered too essential, and his stature in the party too great to be anywhere but the center. In late 1930, he was moved over to the National Economic Council and spent the rest of his career overseeing the expansion of the USSR's industrial sector. It's worth noting that out of all the men I'm talking about here, Orjanakidze was the one Stalin couldn't easily push around and would maintain an independent streak even while carrying out his orders. He was also personally popular among the leaders and reportedly the most fun guy to hang out with. When everybody set up their vacations, there was a minor rush to make sure they could schedule them at the same time as Cool Guy Sergo so that they could all party together. The next big shot from the Caucasus was Anastas Mikoyan, an Armenian revolutionary. He was a generation younger than most of the group and had only just barely survived the early days of the Civil War. He had helped establish the Baku Soviet in 1918 and acted as commissar during the city's defense against the Ottoman expedition sent to seize it during the summer of 1918. After being forced out of the city, he and some other comrades fled across the Caspian Sea to what is now Turkmenistan, where they were picked up by the UK-backed and Menshevik-dominated Transcaspian government. An order came down to execute the group, but the typist simply forgot to add Mikoyan's name to the kill order. His 26 comrades were executed, but he was spared and let go. His association with the martyrs lent him a little uh, mystique within the party. He would be assigned to Moscow in 1926 to head the Trade Commissariat, where he'd be in charge of managing commerce with foreign nations. 
Uh, this irked him to no end, as he considered such work to be bourgeois, and he requested numerous times to either be given a different role in the central government or sent back home. Like Orjanic Idza, he was denied this, but he fell prey to the ethnic cliché that Arminians were wily and gifted merchants, so he was considered perfect for the role. He was, like Orjanic Idza again, one of the more outgoing and social of the group, and personally popular. That probably helped in making him one of the longest surviving of Stalin's inner circle, with a meaningful career even well after Stalin had died. He was frugal, though, and refused taking a little extra that others of his status might have, which, given that he had five kids running around the Kremlin, meant that he had to stretch his modest pay. Eventually, Polina, Molotov's wife, uh, tut-tutted the family and started providing clothes and other goods behind Mikoyan's back, explaining that they were a Politburo family and had to keep up some semblance of appearances. And the last of the Caucasus crew was another youngblood, this time an ethnic Russian, Sergei Kirov. While he wasn't from the region orig originally during the Civil War, he wound up in the North Caucasus. There, he helped establish order in what is now Dagestan and befriended Orjanakidza and Mikoyan, all three managing military affairs far from Moscow and the various army headquarters. The three would remain on excellent terms with each other for the rest of their lives. While Stalin unleashed a reign of terror in Tsaritsyn in 1919, Kirov had one of his own in the city of Astrakhan, just a little way south on the Volga River. He demonstrated that he might have been young, but he wasn't forgiving, and 4,000 suspected whites were shot under his orders. After the Civil War, Kirov was brought in under the recommendations of Orjanikidza and Mikoyan, and quickly grew in esteem in Stalin's eyes. Shortly after coming to Moscow, Kirov was put in charge of the Leningrad branch of the party after Zinoviev's downfall. He hated the position and considered Leningrad a nest of vipers, but it made him a prominent party leader, which would create some, uh kind of a awkward tension between him and Stalin. The general secretary came to regard Kirov as something almost akin to a little brother, and while in Moscow, Kirov would crash on Stalin's couch. The kids loved him because he was charming and youthful and either seemed to be like a kid uncle or an adult sibling at times. But despite the familial closeness, Stalin was at times perturbed by the man's popularity and noted that independent bosses like Orjanikidza felt his place of prominence wasn't necessarily permanent and that Kirov might be the perfect successor one day. He's going to be kind of a bookend for this miniseries and also the one to follow, which, if you know anything about how he ends up, should make a whole lot of sense. Now, not all the big names working under Stalin during the era of the first five-year plan were in the uh, BFF inner circle. They were men who were critical in their own ways, but just didn't get invited to the parties nearly as often as the others which wouldn't bode well for their survivability, but that's another story for another day. I could absolutely go on and on about the legion of high-profile communists uh, that were part of the five-year plan, but the guy I'm going to close on with this batch of introductions was Valerian Kubishev, who was an odd man out in the group when it came to background, in addition to the circles he lived in. He came from a minor noble family, much like Lenin, and had been educated in a military academy before uh, dropping out to join with the Bolsheviks. He served as a political commissar in the army during the Civil War, and afterwards went to work in the state's management of the economy, first succeeding Felix Zhezhinsky on the National Economic Council in 1926, and then becoming chairman of Gosplan, the bureau set up to plan economic strategies, including the first five-year plan, in late 1930. Despite his capabilities and central role right there in the thick of the five-year plan's implementation, 
he was never a true part of the inner circle. He was an accomplished intellectual and poet, and never really fit in with the clique that surrounded Stalin, which was to his detriment, especially after the success of the first five-year plan and the experience gained during it meant that his talents weren't quite so essential afterwards. Despite his centrality to how the plan unfolded, he was always in the close orbit of Stalin's circle, but never quite in it. And I think that is quite enough names to be thrown at you for one episode. There are always more, but these were some of the biggest when it came to how the first five-year plan unfolded. Knowledgeable fans of the Soviet hierarchy might have noticed that I didn't mention Yagoda or Mazhinsky over in the OGPU. Uh, well, I'll have more specific and dedicated coverage to the goings-on of the secret police later in the season, and of course, there will be other introductions made as time goes on. Now, this miniseries, of course, will be focused on the rapid industrialization and collectivization efforts of the first five-year plan, but rest assured that this will not be the only miniseries covering the Soviet Union this season. But next week, though, we will get started with how the first five-year plan really got together with all the backbiting and inner communist squabbling that went along with it. So, join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.